Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on in the show, Chris Hadfield joins me. He's an astronaut, an engineer, a singer, a fighter pilot, and author of many books, including the one we'll talk about today, The Defector. Last year, he wrote a thriller called The Apollo Murders, a Cold War thriller that introduced audiences to former U.S. test pilot Kaz Zemeckis. He returns with the defector, once again placing Zemeckis in the middle of the action, this time as he takes to the sky in aerial combat to hunt down a high-level defector and uncover Soviet secrets. That's a little bit later on. Rick Emmett also joins me. He left Triumph in 1988 to pursue a solo career and released records in a variety of styles, including rock, blues, jazz, classical, bluegrass, and flamenco. He's won a slew of awards, including the Canadian Smooth Jazz Award for Guitarist of the Year, and he's now written a book called Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict, and triumph. It's available now wherever you buy fine books, and that's a little bit later on. First, though, let's get to know Ronaldo Marcus Green, director of the Oscar-winning film King Richard. He returns to theaters this weekend with Bob Marley, One Love, a story of how reggae icon Bob Marley overcame adversity and the journey behind his revolutionary music. We talk about why Bob Marley's influence still resonates today, even though his life was cut short in 1981 when he was aged just 36. Then we'll hear from Bob Marley's son, Ziggy Marley, who talks about his father as an icon, a father, and a musician. There's a war going on. You can't separate the music and the message. Because every day we pay the price. And what is the message? Sacrifice. Peace. Oh, life is worth much more than gold. One love, one heart, one destiny. I have a quote from you. You say that Bob Marley is the most recognizable face on the planet after Jesus. So with that kind of fame in mind, with that kind of iconography in mind, tell me about casting someone to play Bob Marley because it's got to be right or it's not going to work. Yeah, look, I was looking for somebody to get close, to capture the essence of Bob. There's only one Bob Marley. And so we just, we needed somebody that held his, our attention, our pre his presence, and Kingsley did that. You know, after a year-long search, almost uh, when it seemed like it wasn't going to happen, this tape shows up, and who is this guy? And you know, and you start leaning in, and you start thinking, "Whoa, it's possible." Um, he, look, he could have had me fooled with the accent, and, and this was this is what he could do in a couple of weeks without any training. And so, he just had enough. He was really intelligent. He was really charismatic. He. He was disciplined. There was something very, very intelligent about his his tape. And so, yeah, I was moved by it. And Bob Marley's life cut short at age 36 in 1981. Uh, and yet, you walk down the street and there's Bob Marley t-shirts on people. The, every dorm room in America has uh, a poster. The music is everywhere. Why do you think his influence still resonates today? A lot of other acts of that vintage don't have the same kind of cultural footprint that he has. Yeah, it's the message, man. It's the message. He was a revolutionary. And, you know, anytime you come from a 
from where he came from, I think it speaks to the common man and woman. So you, you, you just connect with it because it's real. And people just see Bob as real. They see him as your brethren, but also, then that's the, that's what makes him an icon. You feel like you can touch him, but you can't. And it's just a, yeah, it's a, su a real life superhero. Well, you see that, that kind of musical superhero thing anyway in the film uh, on a couple of occasions, but I think my favorite sequence in the film is the Exodus uh, sequence when they're just, they, they come up with the idea and you see it come together and you can see the wheels turning in his head as it happens. There's, I don't think that much dialogue. It's just like all music and it, to me, captured the essence of what makes Bob Marley great in that moment. And I love the guy in the back banging on the Oh yeah, that's Neville the, Garrick, yeah. Neville Garrick, uh, so rest his soul. He was, he was on set with us actually, the real Neville. Wore a different Bob Marley t-shirt every day. Uh, but yeah, no, he told us that's, you know, something like that had happened and, you know, to depict those scenes was so much fun. I wanted to be a fly on the wall and, and jam out with those guys. Tell me about working with the family, because Bob Marley, we think of him as an icon, but for Ziggy and for Rita and for everyone else, he was a husband and a father. Uh, tell me about working with the family and what influence they had on you. Yeah, I mean, look, they were producers on the film, so, uh, but they were great collaborators. Um, they wanted somebody to come in and help steer the ship, and uh, I, had, I had great support through the Marley family. Language was the biggest, because, because it wasn't just Patois. It was Bob Marley Patois. It was Bob's life and world. And to have access into that world through the family was so critical to not only my cast, my crew, but myself as a filmmaker. You know, we were able to be around them, see how they speak, their disposition, their movements. Um, yeah, it's, it's critical to the filmmaking process. You're listening to director Ronaldo Marcus Green on The Richard Krause Show. His film, Bob Marley, One Love, is in theaters now. Stay tuned, Ziggy Marley coming right up. You do this over and over again. You make movies about real people. Joe Bell, King Richard, and this. What is it about the, the capturing the experience of, of actual real-life people that appeals to you so much? It's just the stories, man. The story's a great story. Bob Marley was a kid from Trenchtown, uh, an unlikely, you know, unlikely, improbable story, right? He's not supposed to make it. That's what the world says to kids like Bob Marley. You're not supposed to make it. You're from the hood. And then look at what happened. You know, it's just a great story. It just so happens to be a great, you know, a biopic. But it's the story that drives me. It's the message that drives me. And so long as those keep you know, keep presenting themselves, I'll keep considering them. Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption song When you write that? All my life. The idea of a biopic about your father had been broached a few times. People have talked about it for a while. What made right now the right time for this? Yeah, what made right now the time for really do it is because we were the ones who were the instigators. You know, it was our initiative. It wasn't somebody coming to us saying, "Hey, I have this movie I want to make about your father," which has happened throughout the years. Yeah. This is the first time we are really um, taking the first step to do it. So that's why. And it's been 43 years since your father passed away. And everywhere you go, in my opinion, anyway, everywhere I go, I see a poster. I see a T-shirt. I hear his music coming out of a radio or it's on in a restaurant. What's it like for you 
to still probably be surrounded by him after so long away? Yeah, well, he's never away from me because I'm a part of him, right? And he's a part of me. You know, we have that natural, you know, with DNA. Um, yeah, we don't really think about it too much. We don't think about it like that, you know. We just, this is how we've been living like this from, from we were born, around my father, music and everything. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. But we don't think about it too much, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did working on this film and, and uh, being part of this make you think about your father in, in a different way? Did you learn anything? Was there something about it that what became clear for you? Yeah, I mean, the first point you make about thinking about him in a different way, I think that is the point for me. It wasn't about learning anything new, because we were the one who was teaching, mm -hmm. um, teaching people how, you know, Bob's personality, what happened, along with Neville Garrick, who was Bob's friend, was with us on set, making sure everything was done right. But what it did make me think of, that I never really thought about before, was what he went through emotionally during this time period. It was a very hard time for anybody to have these experiences that he was having, being shot, you know, having to leave his country, having doubts about why, why his own, like, why his friends, why his people try to hurt him, he's trying for the good, cancer diagnosis. I mean, it's a whole heap of thing going on. So it made me wonder, wow, what my father was going through emotionally, you know, on the inside, it must, it's a, it's a, it, it must have taken a toll emotionally on him, you know, and mentally, psychologically, and it made me think about that, which I haven't thought about before. On December 3rd, 1976, would-be assassins invaded Bob Marley's home and attempted to take the life of the singer, his wife, and... Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that thing. That every little thing gonna be all right. You like that one? Yeah. There's a war going on. Oh, I can't bring peace. I can't even get peace for myself. You were young when he passed away. Uh, and I wonder if watching this movie again, I love the sequence where they write the song Exodus mm. because you can see it forming in his head as it's happening. It's an incredible thing. Tell me, and you got a big smile thinking about it. Tell, like, is that how you remember him? Is Do you remember him writing music in that way? Yeah, man. Um, when my father writes music, is it's not a professional thing. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a spontaneous thing. It's a vibe thing. And as kids, he would be playing his guitar, and he would say, "Come, on, come sing," and we would sit around and try to you know sing what he's singing. But yeah, that's the way that's the way the real music is made. It's not a it's not a you know it's a it's a, it's a spiritual inspiration. This is my message to you. That was Ziggy Marley on The Richard Krause Show talking about the film Bob Marley, One Love, currently playing in theaters. Produced by Bob Marley's widow Rita, daughter Sedilla, and Ziggy, Bob Marley, One Love documents how Bob Marley became more than just a music star. It's about how he became a symbol of unity and peace. Director Ronaldo Marcus Green, who we heard from a little bit earlier, does fall prey to the occasional music biography traps as Marley grapples with his meteoric rise to fame and the expectations of a record company looking for hits, but it's buoyed by the performances and most of all, the music. The movie is wall-to-wall -wall with classic Bob Marley tunes, and that's, I think, what really makes it great. It's an entertaining reminder of the mark made by the incredible music 
that Bob Marley left behind. I'm in conversation with musician and author Rick Emmett. You know him from his dazzling guitar work with the band Triumph and have likely enjoyed his solo releases in many musical genres over the years. Now he adds a new title to his already impressive resume. That's author. His new book, Lay It on the Line, A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict and Triumph, merges memoir, anecdotes, and masterclasses on guitar, songwriting, and the artist's mindset all in one book, which is available now wherever fine books are sold. In this segment, we talk about what you learned about yourself when you sit down to write a memoir. Here's Rick Emmett. Do you think that you learned things about yourself by looking to the past? I know that uh, you are someone who is probably only most excited about the next thing, right? Like a lot of creative people. But when you look to the past, particularly things that you haven't thought about for a a great deal of time, I think that you can gain new perspective on it and have that slap of the forehead kind of moment where you go, why didn't this occur to me 15 years ago? Yes, exactly. You know, and I think writing is one of the beautiful things that allows you to sort of, you know, um, you're in a moment and uh, you wish you'd said something, you know, and then you know, a day later, you go, oh, I should have said this. You go, well, you can write that, you know, and you can figure out how to form it into your story about, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, what your life was like, Um, which in a way is you're not trying to revise history, but you are trying to revise the way, the attitude you have about what happened Mm -hmm. so that you do become sort of, you know, a a better person, a, 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 a kinder, gentler you know, Jimmy Carter kind of person, you know. Yeah. Well, you said recently in an interview that I saw, I'm not afraid anymore to speak truth. What am I saving it for? Were you afraid of things, the truth, the real story? I, I, I'm, I'm just wondering about clarifying that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you touched on it. That, uh, you know, there's certain truths about my marriage that I would never want to make public because I have too much uh, respect uh, for my wife and and her own dignity and, 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 you know, the life that she has, you know, my kids, uh, the guys in triumph, you know, um, there are certain things where uh, I'm going to respect the integrity of other people and put it ahead of my own. Mm -hmm. So even though I might go, God damn, I want to, I want to tell, you know, I want to tell the truth. I want to tell the story. You go, yeah, but discretion is the better part of valor. And these are all cliches. Nevertheless, they become cliches because they're true so many times, you know, that you go, no, that that's the truth. Yeah. Sometimes cliches are cliches because they're absolutely true. And I think that you really uh, often find that when you are introspective and you start thinking about your life in relationship to other people and to the world that you're living in, you realize, oh, there's a reason why these truisms have lasted for, you know, decades or years or, you know, whatever it might be. It's Uh, true. Let me let me tell you another humbling thing about writing a memoir, the process of it, that mm -hmm. that about learning about yourself, what it teaches you. So uh, you're looking back on all these things and you're realizing that there are certain things that happened in your life and it was just pure dumb luck. It was just pure (laughs) random chance happenstance. Like this was the truth that I arrived at at so many 
pretty large junctures of my life and good things, bad things. Like when I was 17 years old and playing football and I got my knee torn up and mm -hmm. my ACL was no longer in existence. It was like, well, that changed the course of my life. And when you're looking back on it, you're realizing, oh yeah, took a left turn there. Yeah. Ooh, big right turn there. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a, a section of the book where you uh, start, I think the first line of the chapter is, some things only a rock star can tell you. And <laughs> I've often wondered what it would be like to walk out on stage in front of 10,000 people or more and just hear that rush, right? What does that feel like? What do, What is it like? I've never, I've been in the audience, but I've never been on the stage. So tell me, uh, and I'm sure that's one of the things only a rock star can tell you. So tell me uh, a couple of things that only a rock star can tell us. Well, I mean, I know what it's like. Uh, and there's a story in there about um, being a kid and going to Maple Leaf hockey games at Maple Leaf Gardens and sitting in the end blues, you know, as a little kid. You're listening to Rick Emmett on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Lay It on the Line, A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict and Triumph, is available now wherever you buy fine books. And then, you know, on a night in 1978, I got to walk out onto a stage in the concert pool at Maple Leaf Gardens, and it was our building. My name, my, you know, the band I was in was up on the marquee and I stood there at soundcheck and I looked up and I could see that seat that I sat in when I was a kid. And you're just going like, I'm, I'm telling you the story now and I'm getting goosebumps in my body because I remember that moment of, holy crap, who gets to have this kind of moment? Mm -hmm. Do I deserve to have this moment? Like, but I'm having it, you know? So, and I had that so many times in my life. I know what it's like to, um, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bang off a bunch, okay? Uh, walk out on the stage with Joe Louis Arena when they first built Joe Louis Arena. We were one of the first bands to play there. The band the the building's been torn down now, but nevertheless, that shows you how old I'm getting. But <laughs> so uh, we walked out, and uh, I think it was maybe uh, Magic Power, the beginning, maybe after the drum solo. I can't remember, but everybody in the building had their Bic lighters. And it was 17,000 people in this, in this, you know, it was just a sea of, oh my godness, yeah. you know, that you're, and this, this, as you say, this roar that's kind of coming at you, that's just like, and there's times where, uh, okay, I'm going to give you another, this is not me, but it, as a story in my book, uh, I played the uh, Phoenix uh, Concert Theater in Toronto, and it was a guitar night, the Night of a Thousand Guitars, it was part of the uh, Toronto Guitar Festival in 87. And I did a duo thing with Ed Bickert, the, the you know, oh, the dean of Canadian legendary. jazz. Yeah. And an unbelievable thing for me just to be able to get to play with the guy, because, you know, I'm this, you know, rock star. Yeah. It, I do not belong on the same stage as Ed. And so we come out, I'm going to do one of my tunes, Suitcase Blues, and Ed's going to be playing along with me. And it, the crowd is mostly guitar weenies, right? They're, they're guys that are into guitar and love guitar, and, and it's mostly guys. But... And they're mostly guys that are there because they want it. Steve Morse is there from uh, Dixie Drags and Deep Purple, and and and, uh, and Kim Mitchell came and played with us that night. I mean, so it was a it was a star-studded kind of night. Leona Boyd was on the gig. So, um, anyways, the crowd starts this this roar starts coming up, and Ed is sitting there, and then the roar keeps going, and it's kind of getting stronger and louder. And he's sitting there with his old beat-up telly. And he, and he did a thing where it was like Jack Benny. He put his hand on his cheek, was like, oh, my God, what is happening? You know, and I was laughing because he'd never experienced anything like 
Well, I used to go see him play at Georgia Spaghetti House or, you know, those places which were you were quiet when you went to see those jazz shows. You know, if you applaud, well, you would applaud, but it would be very, you know, polite golf uh, clapping uh, in between songs. And they were very, very quiet gigs. So this would have been something unusual for him. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a part of him where you could see he's just he's barely stomaching it, you know, like he. It's not his thing. Yeah. He doesn't really like it, but okay, Rick invited one. Rick, it got me on the cover of Guitar Player Magazine, yeah. so I, I've got to play along here. And oh well, you know. But it wasn't like he was enjoying it. it was just it was kind of like. But for me, I was going, oh, this is just. He's finally experiencing what it feels like to be like honored yeah. in a roaring kind of way. Now I've stood in front of the US Festival. May 29, 1983, you know, I don't know, anywhere between 250 and 400,000, depending on how many drugs you did and <laughs> make you drive all that stuff. But that was just, that was an incredible afternoon. That was a uh, an amazing day in my life. And, you know, there's stories in the book. There's got to be a dozen uh, stories that I could tell you about what it's like to be in on the stage in that moment. But I also like it to to, to be able to say, yeah, well, I know what it's like, you know, when, you know, one of the uh, roadies had an accident and fell off the truck, yeah. you know, and and then we were dealing with that, you know, or what it was like when, I don't know, you know, the, the merch guys took baseball bats and went outside the building and chased off the guys that were selling bootleg stuff outside the building. Right, right. Like that would happen every, you know, six months, there would be one of those nights and you just go like, whoa, you know, like. Those things don't happen to your average person. You're in the dressing room and you're going, oh man, there's like a there's there's a there's a a maelstrom that spins out of control all around me, and I'm just in the eye of the hurricane. Chris Hadfield is an astronaut, an engineer, a singer, a fighter pilot, and the author of the memoir An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, the children's book The Darkest Dark, which was illustrated by the Fan Brothers, and the photo book You Are Here Around the World in 92 Minutes. Last year, he wrote the number one best-selling thriller, The Apollo Murders, a Cold War thriller that introduced audiences to former U.S. test pilot Kaz Zemeckis as he attempted to stay one step ahead of his Soviet rivals as Russian and American crews sprint for a secret bounty hidden away on the moon's surface. Hadfield returns to the bookstores with The Defector, once again placing Kaz Zemeckis in the middle of the action, this time as he takes to the sky in aerial combat to hunt down a high-level defector and uncover Soviet secrets. Chris Hadfield joined me via Zoom to talk about creating the character Kaz and how he approached writing his second book of fiction. This is your second work of fiction. Was it different this time around? What, did you find the process easier? That's or- a great, great question. You know, uh, yes. When I wrote the first one, The Apollo Murders, I didn't know what was going to be in the story. And so rather than just research something and and try and keep efficient notes, I basically took everything I thought that might be in the story and wrote it as part of the story until I had written uh, 195,000 word. Which for people who don't know is uh, about a, I don't know, a three inch book, probably a three inch book. Yeah, it's two books. And so I'd written this enormous book and then it needed to be, 
you know, I mean, all the raw materials in there, but it needed to be edited down to what is already a pretty big book. The Apollo Murders is 130, 135,000 words. When I was writing The Defector, just because of experience, I was much more efficient. I had a better understanding of, hey, I need this research, but I don't need to write it as part of the story to, to get it in my head as backstory or whatever. And so I was much more efficient in writing The Defector. And the book came out at about 100,000 words. And my first draft of it, uh, when I turned it into the editor, was about 100,000 words. You know, we we removed a couple of things. I added a couple of things. But it came out about as a wash. So, yeah, I learned a lot about fiction writing. Not, not how, how could you not? By, by writing The Apollo Murders and now by writing The Defector. And as I'm doing research for the third book in the series now, you know, I've got the benefit of those previous uh, two books of experience behind me. And hopefully I can I can be as uh, time efficient as possible in writing the next book. Do you think that the way that you streamlined that process is still uh, a result of the way that you often say you still think like an astronaut, even though you are earthbound these days, uh, you still, whatever project you're looking at, uh, you think about it in a different way than maybe some of us do. You know, on my first space flight, uh, when I flew on Space Shuttle Atlantis, because I hadn't actually done it, everything was of equal importance. Mm-hmm. When somebody teaches you something, you don't have the benefit of, of uh, experiential judgment to go, we don't need to know that. Everything is equally important. And so you got to learn everything. But then once you've gone in, you know, it's sort of like someone telling you how to ride a bicycle. They could tell you all the theory in the world, but until you actually go and try it out and, and, and learn to ride a bicycle, and then you come back and you go, all that crap you told me, well, I only needed this little bits of it. You know, the rest of it was just theory. And so learning to fly a spaceship uh, is very much the same, it's just more complicated. And the second time I flew in space, and the third time I flew in space, I could just, we don't even need to study that. That That's, yes, that's important information, but we won't need to know it real time. And therefore, let's not waste any time or brain cells learning that. And uh, and I think that applies to anything complex that you're going to undertake, whether it's uh, flying spaceships or writing thriller fiction. Is uh, Kaz Zemeckis, who is the main character in both of these novels, uh, The Apollo Murders and now The Defector, uh, is he your James Bond? Is he your Harry Potter? Is he the character that you'll be writing about for years to come? Yeah, I have at least, I think, two more books in mind right now. We'll see how it all goes. Uh, But I definitely have a continuing plot threads that make sense for two more books after The Defector. You're listening to Chris Hadfield on The Richard Krause Show. His new thriller novel, The Defector, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Um, I I really made a study of it when I was looking at how how do you write thriller fiction? You know, I I learned to fly F-18s. I learned to to scuba dive. You, You just you get someone to show you and you do a bunch of study and then you practice it and get better at it. But I was thinking, how do you choose a recurring main character? They can't just have a run-of-the-mill job. They can't just be doing one thing because there won't be enough variety in their life in order to have them reoccur in multiple books. And that's why often 
things are like at a hospital because there's all those characters moving through or a police station or a law firm or fantasy island or something, you know, or love boat. It's because you have recurring characters, but a constant natural flow through of other things. So when I chose Kaz Zemeckis, I gave him all the skills. You know, he's got multiple university degrees. He's a combat fighter pilot. He's a test pilot. He got qualified to be an astronaut and then he was injured. So that now he couldn't do all of those predictable things, but he has all the skills. So that frees him up as a wild card for me. I can now insert him into all these other situations and and, and it's not unnatural for him to be there because you know what else would the military do with them? And so uh, so I was I was quite deliberate in how I I chose a main protagonist and and I gave him you know uh, uh, as much an interesting back. I didn't call him. Tom Jones, you know, he's he's a Lithuanian Jew uh, whose parents fled World War II and came to New York and and uh, with a name like Kazimierz Zemeckis. But but he's a, you know, 100 percent through and through American and uh, and serving his country. So so, yeah, uh, I really like the character and the freedom it gives me as an author. And then the people around him, you know, uh, J.W., the flight surgeon and Svetlana, uh, the cosmonaut. You know, she wasn't even on my radar when I started writing the Apollo murders, but the character uh, naturally sort of appeared as an option. And then once I started writing, what would Svetlana do next? Suddenly she's like, oh, yeah, she's this is a really interesting character. And uh, and so she's in the defector and, and then she'll be very much in the in the book that comes after the defector as well. I've had a, a number of authors tell me that when they're writing characters, whether they are just for one book or they appear over and over again, there comes a point where the character kind of takes on their own life. Douglas Copeland told me one time, it's almost as if his characters sit on his shoulders and whisper into his ears what they want to do. Uh, do you have any experience with that sort of thing? Oh, it's even more than that, Richard. Um, they they aren't just with me to help write the book. They're with me all the time. You know, they're, they're like they're like perpetual consultants in all the things that I'm doing. Like, you know, when I'm faced with any sort of situation, I hear what what would Kaz do? What would Svetlana do? What would JW do, given that this is what's happening right now? And and to me, it's kind of funny, but they are just as real as a as a voice within my own head as the people that are also my consultants. You know, you always hear your own voice from your own life, or you hear your parents or your teachers or whoever, your spouse, whoever else was influential in your life. It's it's quite a surprise to me that these characters that I invented are now uh, very much a part of my process in considering options when dealing with the world. So yeah, and, and then you just sort of turn them loose. Once I've decided the arc of the story and, uh, and where they're going to come in, then they are just going to do what that person would do next. And, and, and then you got to go, Oh shoot, that this is what Svetlana would do now. You know, what else would she, this is what she would do. And so the story has to reflect that, which is kind of delightful. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but sometimes it then pulls the story in a direction that I wasn't expecting, but that's okay. Uh, it, the book should also be a discovery, not just for the reader, but also for me. Well, if they're not surprising to you, they may not be yeah. surprising for a reader as well. Yeah. 
you know, I don't want it to be formulaic. And, and so to me, that's the whole idea of it is, is this interesting human being and now they're faced with something they didn't expect and it's historic and what happens next. And, uh, and I'm just as intrigued by that as anybody. Is Kaz Zemeckis named after Robert Zemeckis? I just have to visit no, the film director. I know you're a film fan. I was wondering. No, here's my process. What what I do is I sort of think about uh, uh, what sort of person is this, and then I actually just do image searches. Yeah. I go, what what what? When I have an image of this person in my head, what do they look like? You know, is this a tall person, a short person, a wide person, a narrow person? What sort of skin tone? What's their hair color? What, you know, what's, and then I, I do an image search and then I find someone, yeah, that sort of looks like how I'm visualizing this person. And then I go, oh, okay. So people who generally look like that, you know, what sort of names do they have and, and where are they from and what might be their particular genetic, you know, makeup that makes them look that way. And what part of the world did that genetic come from mm -hmm. and then I, I just i find like a bunch of names of people from that part of the world and and i i say them you know in conversation okay so talk about them and 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 i go oh yeah well that's perfect you know his name's casimira zemeckis pretty awful name for an american kid you know but kaz that's the natural short form and it's it's what his call sign would have been and and, and it's a very American sort of sounding name. So perfect. As much as you feature fictional characters, there are also real life characters like real astronauts and cosmonauts, politicians, diplomats, all sorts of things in here. Um, how do you approach writing about someone in a fictional context who exists or existed in real life? Well, first, I was fearful of getting sued. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Am I allowed to include real people? Yeah. Um, so I talked to John Butler, my main publisher, and he said, oh, yeah, so long as you're not slanderous or, uh, you know, or, or doing something crimes that would be embarrassing. And especially the far further back you go, if you're writing about someone in the 13th century, I mean, how offended can anybody get? Right. right. Um, but uh, in this case, some of these people are still alive. You know, I have uh, Gene Krantz, you know, the guy failure is not an option, mission controller. I know Gene. I was emailing. In fact, Gene read The Defector and loved it. Um, and I, I read Gene's recent, most recent book. So what I am is I'm just careful to make them true to reality. What would they actually do? A uh, couple of quick questions. Uh, Area 51 features in the book. Have you been? Uh, so I, I I haven't been actually out to Area 51, but obviously I've flown over it a thousand times on board a spaceship, and I, I've driven right around the entire uh, nuclear test range in Nevada, and I've been to the you know nuclear test museum that's in La, uh, Las Vegas, mm -hmm. and um, and so I've driven up that road that leads to Area 51 as far as you're legally allowed to drive. And, and so I got a, I got out of the car and walked the hills around there, really tried to get a feel for it. Um, but I've been to lots of military bases, some secret, some not. And so and, and there's a lot of information out there about Area 51 now, too. So so, um, you know, it's got a lot of folklore uh, about it, but it's just a base, Groom Lake, Dreamland, Area 51. And uh, I tried to include it completely realistically and recognize it's just a place that very few people have access to 
where real things have happened and are continuing to happen. So I, I thought it was important to, to get that right in The Defector. You're listening to Chris Hadfield on The Richard Krause Show. His new thriller novel, The Defector, is available wherever fine books are sold. Though you can't confirm or deny whether they have aliens there. <laughs> yeah, I've never been there, so correct. I, I can't confirm nor deny, no. I don't think I've spoken with you since I saw Top Gun Maverick. But as I was watching it, knowing your history uh, with those kinds of planes, I thought, well, I wonder what uh, Chris Hadfield thinks about this. Well, uh, I flew F-18s, and Top Gun Maverick takes place almost exclusively in F-18s. It is the best uh, combat jet flying movie i've ever seen and i and it is so much better than the original top gun the original top gun was just a fun cartoon you know it was it was silly you know what was happening and they didn't really care about details but that's okay they were just you know kelly mcgillis and, and tom cruise as a young man but tom cruise grew up since he made top gun and he's become a very experienced pilot and he does you know a lot of his own stunts and he was adamant in in not just skipping past the reality of stuff to try and make it a fun story and and you know when there's that p51 at the end that's tom flying that p51 and he snuck a few things in that didn't need to be there that show his level of of you know pilotness which which i liked and um and just the 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 brutal urgency of flying in combat and the wicked nature it takes on the body and and all of that stuff it was really well portrayed i was just flinching and twisting in my seat through that whole movie because it was so viscerally real yeah i really enjoyed uh maverick um and and uh and and also you know his his, his uh, the 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 female love interest for him, she was sort of age appropriate. It wasn't just you know silliness like so many of the movies are. So yeah, I, and and it brought people back into the theaters after the pandemic. So yeah, I, I really uh, have a lot of praise for that movie. It was good. Yeah, it is a good movie. I thought it felt real. I thought it felt authentic. But what do I know? I'm glad to hear <laughs> that I wasn't uh, too far off the mark on that. Uh, Commander Hatfield, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you again. Good to talk with you as well, Richard. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys The Defector. Uh, it was a lot of fun to write. And uh, hey, I get it. it turns out I have a copy of it as well. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but all of the early reviews are, are just great for the book, which is, really warms my heart. So that thanks, thanks a lot. Nice to, nice to chat with you. That must feel good, the good reviews. Uh, I mean, if people say they don't care about them, but when they're good like that, it, it makes a difference, right? Oh, it really does, you know, and uh, and so, yeah, I'm very glad to see them. It's uh, it, and, you know, to have people who don't normally read, take the time and love it and then tell me that they loved it. To me, that's the biggest compliment I could ever get. Well, we'll be looking forward to the third book in the series. <laughs> me, too. I just have to find out what the characters are up to. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Talk to you see soon. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Chris Hadfield on The Richard Krause Show. His new thriller novel, The Defector, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Former Navy SEAL sniper and number one New York Times bestselling author Jack Carr called The Defector a full-throttle, adrenaline-laced espionage page-turner. Get ready to blast off, he said. Don't like to read? You can also find the book at audible.com. You can listen to it. 
in the comfort of your own home. A big thanks to Commander Hadfield for stopping by to talk about his new novel and playing film critic with me. Also a big thanks to Rick Emmett. Find his book, Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict, and Triumph, wherever you buy fine books. And a huge thanks to Ronaldo Marcus Green and Ziggy Marley for stopping by to tell me about their film, Bob Marley, One Love, in theaters right now. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 